This podcast is a production of the Washington Library at George Washington's Mount Vernon. We receive no government funding and rely solely on the generosity of listeners like you. If you'd like to support this podcast, as well as new research and teaching opportunities focused on George Washington and his world, please consider making a donation by visiting our website at www.mountvernon.org podcast. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to Conversations at the Washington Library, a podcast about early American history and the people who teach it. I'm your host, Dr. Joe Stoltz, and in this episode, I will be sitting down with Dr. Lawrence Hatter, a professor of history at Washington State University, uh, who was recently a fellow here at, Washington, at the Washington Library, and we are going to be discussing uh, his research project on American overseas merchant communities uh, during the age of revolutions. Brief housekeeping. Uh, there are still tickets available for the July 5th book talk by Gonzalo Quintero, who will be discussing his book, Bernardo de Galvez, Spanish Hero of the American Revolution. Uh, also, uh, if you would be so kind, please be sure to rate uh, this episode after you're done listening to it. And also be sure to follow us on social media, either at facebook.com slash the Washington Library or on Twitter and Instagram at GW Books. And here's the interview. Hey, Lawrence. Well, thank you for coming on to the show and talking with us. Well, thank you for having me. How has your fellowship been going this past month? Uh, it's been fantastic. It's, um, I've had fellowships at other places before, but it's you know a unique experience to be sort of on campus, so to speak, or on the estate. So And living so closely with other fellows, which has been great. Yeah, I think, uh, how many have we had while you were here? Um, let me think. Four or five, I think. Yeah, it's one of the one of the interesting things with our our fellowship program uh, that the, you all can come in any time of year. So mm-hmm. it's, it's sometimes you know just one person will be here, sort of quietly living in the their scholars' residence uh, on their own with no other human interaction, unless we all come in. <laughs> but then there'll be other times where you know there's a house full of you all, and yeah, it's sort it's of interesting cool. for the staff because we can always kind of tell. Either either the fellows are super excited to see us because they haven't had much human contact for like 18 hours or there's just a plethora of inside jokes that the staff at some point no longer get because you're all living together mm-hmm. with each other. So it's fun. Uh, so your, uh, what is what is your, your work been about so far? Uh, the fellowship? It, uh, no, or, just in general with your career. In sort of broad strokes, what, what interests broad you? Broad strokes. Well, I guess I'm interested in how American citizens and British subjects become separated. These categories become separated after the revolution because, you know, a traditional interpretation of the revolution is that it's a moment of sort of national consciousness for Americans that they sort of wake up one day and realize, well, we're not really British, we're Americans, and therefore it makes perfect sense that we should pursue independence. But I think a lot of historians sort of have refuted that um, you know, that's not even necessarily a recent thing, but, uh, you know, a great example is sort of Maya Jasanoff's book about American loyalists that sort of shows that there is no calculation that you can make. You can't predetermine who's going to be a patriot and who's going to be a loyalist. And in fact, uh, you know, that this is a process, that the revolution is a process over maybe 30, 40, 50 years. So that's sort of, I guess, the broad framework of my interests. Yeah, no, that's a... Uh that's a great tie-in to a conversation uh, I had with uh, Charlene Boyer-Lewis, uh, I guess that would be two episodes now, 
uh, what we were sort of discussing, you know, Peggy Shippen, yeah. you know, that, uh, yeah, you don't just wake, as you put it, you know, you don't just wake up one day and be like, you know, no, no, I, I think I'd like to continue paying taxes. Or you don't just wake up one day and you're like, mm, no, I don't want to pay taxes. And let me, you know, go shoot people in red coats because that's, uh, you know, that it is a process and that it, you know, loyalism is a process. It, 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 it uh depends on where and when and, and myriads of factors that, as you said, you know, there's not sort of like some political science solve for X and all of a sudden mm-hmm. someone just pops out a patriot uh, or a revolutionary. Um, so that's issue. So your first book, uh, Citizens of Convenience, The Imperial Origins of American Nationhood on the U.S.-Canadian Border. Um, tell us about that. Well, it's uh, the story of the U.S.-Canadian border and the ways in which it uh, was sort of intertwined with American nationhood. And this is nationhood thinking of the American people being distinct. So it is this sort of question of sort of American nationalism. And this is something that Jefferson claims in the Declaration of Independence. This, in many ways, is the idea that undergirds the sense of uh, American sovereignty, that as a distinct people, they are a distinct nation. And it makes sense for them to break the bonds with, you know, Great Britain, but it's more of an assertion than anything. Um, and then the sort of connected process of American imperialism, the what we, I guess, traditionally might have called Western expansion. But how these two things sort of work together, I mean, I guess one of the central arguments is that the border is this place that can make a distinction over time between who's a British subject and who's an American citizen, and that this process has worked out through U.S. imperialism in the West. So that involves both... Um, you know, the conquest of indigenous lands, um, but also sort of a working out of all these sort of colonists from Britain and Spain um, that are out in the West that don't have clear allegiance to the United States. Yeah, well, I think it's interesting as you brought up that, you know, Jefferson is one of the people that sort of early on is arguing there is this clear distinction. Um, but then flash forward a few decades and it's going to be Jefferson and his boy Madison that are you know, saying, well, no, if we just like merely march into Canada for the War of 1812, like the, these Canadians clearly just want to be, how could they not want to be Americans, right? And it's, so it's fascinating that on the same time, like when it's politically convenient for yes. Tom, that it's uh, almost, uh, some might say, convenient. Uh, uh, they could. They yeah. could do that. That, you know, yeah. it's, uh, well, it's, it's a distinct thing until we don't want it to be. Would you... Yeah, totally. I mean, you know, that's something that Alan Taylor's written about in his Civil War of 1812, which is a great book. Um, this sense of both Americans and Canadian slash British subjects, um, that, that they're still one people. Um, and it always reminds me of that uh, scene from uh, Full Metal Jacket uh, when they encounter a joker, a private joker encounters this colonel and he's like, inside every... Vietnamese, there's an American waiting to get out. And I think that's really how, um, at least at the start of the War of 1812, many Americans looked to Canadians. And obviously there's a long history here in terms of American invasion of Canada um, at the beginning of the War of Independence, um, the fact that the Artois Confederation had a space for Quebec. Mm-hmm. Um, so, that, I mean, that sort of points to, uh, you know, the, the, the separation or the space between sort of rhetoric and reality. So there's this rhetoric of Americans as very distinct, and then there's the reality, well, actually, no, not really. And do you think, uh, you know, where, where is that sort of, uh, in, your, in your research, 
uh, are you finding that that sort of um, universalist spirit? Right? Is it is it that the uh, that the American revolutionaries want? You know, because they're arguing that this is you know mm-hmm. an inalienable cause, a God given yeah. uh, rights. You know, and is it is just this assumption that well, surely everyone else would want to embrace the revolution and uh, you know, sort of big R revolution and continue the cause, or where's that coming from? On the side of the American government, well, it, it's kind of essential to their sort of claims of sovereignty in the, in you know, across the North American continent. This is the kind of imperial dimension. They weren't satisfied. Well, they weren't satisfied for various reasons with you know the pre the original thirteen colonies that the United States needed to expand to survive was sort of the idea. And this is something that Washington was also very conscious of. And um, I was looking, reminding myself of a letter he wrote to Benjamin Harrison the governor of Virginia in 1784, and he was really concerned about Western separatism, that people across the Appalachians would separate from the United States. Um, and the, the letter, the context of the letter was trying to improve the Potomac, and we think of, we're obviously aware of Washington's land speculation in the Ohio Valley, and, you know, you sort of think of him as this savvy sort of land investor, but there was, he understood the political dimensions of this too, and that Westerners would really have no reason to be loyal to the United States. And and the way, the vehicle that he saw for sort of building union was commerce. Mm -hmm. And that's really what's at the center of my first book. And in fact, that the new project, which I'll talk about, I'm sure in due course, uh, the ability of trade to tie people together through shared interest, um, which is complicated because the geography of North America didn't support that. The Appalachians were a significant barrier to east-west trade. And in fact, um, the people that I focus on in my book are uh, Montreal merchants, merchants in the Montreal fur trade, because the St. Lawrence River Valley had much better Western access, um, cutting west of the the Appalachians and then down through the Great Lakes, connecting to the great highways of trade, the Ohio, Mississippi, the Missouri. Um, And this was the sort of the, uh, certainly the concern that builds into the 19th century is the power of this commerce, um, which is connecting Westerners and indigenous people with the British Empire. So there's this fear of sort of recolonization by Britain, that the revolution isn't the end. We often sort of forget, I mean, uh, you know, the, the revolution happens, or the war of independence, I guess I would say, um, the US wins, and then Britain sort of disappears from the picture often, you know, but they're still there, yeah. right? They're in Canada. Um, and in fact, British subjects, or are they, is the sort of point of my book, are still, uh, you know, living in Western places like Detroit, yeah, well, I mean, yeah, one of the things I, I really like with your book uh, is it picks up, uh, you know, the, the George Washington sort of story um, in a place where I, I, as a military historian, am normally done with it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the things I, I, I talk with a lot of groups here at Mount Vernon about is, is Washington's use of the Continental Army as a nationalizing Institution, right? But that only really works for people in the army, and, and yeah. you know, despite Alexander Hamilton's hopes and dreams, right? Congress is never going to support a large enough army for Hamilton to, not that he ever actually wants like universal conscription into the army, right? But you're never going to have an army big mm-hmm. enough to actually act as a unifying force. And as you point out, commerce is then a very sort of civilian way uh, to to link people um, together, and uh, you know, so. It strikes me, though, with your with your book, though, there's there's that tension between uh, when people are wanting to be brought together, but when they'll also sh- at the same time when they'll sort of shed national identity, 
win it and helps them. And uh, why would that help people at times? Well, I guess, I mean, that would explain what the title is about, which we haven't really done. So who are these citizens of convenience? Well, they're people tied into this transnational trade network, which is centered in Montreal, but extends, as I've always alluded to, to, you know, Detroit, St. Louis, up the Missouri River, eventually, eventually to, you know, Astoria um, by, uh, you know, 1810, 1811, before Astoria is founded. And then in the other direction to London and and markets in the Baltic, Italy, Germany, places like that. So, you know, why are people shifting? Well, this network predates the revolution. It's tied together through uh, kinship um, among British, French, native peoples. Um, And in that sense, these claims to nationality don't make sense to people on the ground and that they have these sort of pre-existing uh, relationships and that, uh, you know, both well, largely the United States, but to some extent the British Empire too, are trying to sort of impose this sense of some national identity, of national obligation. And really the book's about sort of legal status in terms of how can you command loyalty in a legal sense from these individuals. So what happens is that the revolution in that sense is really sort of indeterminate in the West. Uh, the Treaty of Paris in 1783 draws that line, that border, but it doesn't do anything else. Um, It doesn't explain how it's going to function. There's no trade agreement between Britain and the United States in 1783. Uh, And in fact, British troops continue to garrison the Western Post. So from sort of Oswego um, to uh, Michilimackinac, um, British troops on American soil. And and the significance of these places is these are the sort of the the choke points of commerce. So these British forts are controlling key rivers um, and straits that control trade. So in essence, nothing changes for these people. These people who, I mean, initially the merchants are terrified. They're like, oh, my God, what's happened? We're going to lose all our trade. This is the end. Um, but nothing happens. Nothing happens until the Jay Treaty, in which is negotiated in 1794, which is the first commercial agreement between the British Empire and the United States. And it helps to resolve many of these ambiguities. Uh, but it does so in a way that actually creates new ambiguities. So in in the sense that the American merchants now have access to uh, British markets um, in both the archipelago, to some extent the Caribbean, and to some extent Asia too. Um, But on the northern border, um, there are a couple of things that are really significant in the the, the second and third articles, for those of you following along at home with your J Treaty. (laughs) Um, so so I, th- I, I may mix them up, but so I'm not going to specify what's in which because um, I'm not following along. Uh, and that is, one, that the residents of the Western Post, these merchants, are allowed to choose whether or not they become an American citizen or a British subject. They have a year in which to do this, but there's no system that records this decision, and that's going to create problems. What it's going to mean is that these individuals in the future will claim, well, I'm an American citizen or I'm a British subject, and there's no way to prove that they are are or are not. Um, And the next article, which is significant, is freedom of movement. So what this does is guarantee freedom of movement for British subjects, American citizens, and native peoples across the border. Um, that you cannot raise obstacles to this free movement. So what it means is that border, you know, today if anyone crosses the land border with Canada, um, you know, you've got to show your passport or whatever, ascertain your uh, status. Um, That doesn't happen. And obviously this is the 18th century. Nobody's walking around with 
uh, with you know these biometric passports. <laughs> Um, but there's no barrier there, that the border is not a place that distinguishes between people who belong within the body politic of the United States and people who are foreigners. Uh, and this had a number of implications, um, firstly for um, American efforts to conquer and subdue native peoples. Uh, it was a way that allowed the British Empire to continue to uh, support uh, you know, native confederacies when it suited them. Um, but in addition, it also created problems for sort of building, uh, you know, a civil society in the West. And Detroit is a great place, a great example of this. So Detroit in the 1790s is the largest town in west of the Appalachians. There's about 2,000 people living in the town and the sort of surrounding farms. A third of them decide that they're going to be British subjects. And this worries territorial officials. Um, and it creates problems um, for, for example, the militia. So the Wayne County militia, uh, the commander of the militia decides that he's no longer going to call out the militia because uh, he doesn't trust them because he tries to muster the militia and very few people turn up. And they all say, well, we're busy doing other things. We're British subjects. We're not doing this. No, well, as British subjects, were they required to no. show up? for? Yeah. No. Um, they couldn't get juries of citizens. <laughs> yeah. um, and in fact... Uh, moving forward into the election of 1800 in uh, Detroit. By this point, uh, the Northwest Territory has moved into the second stage, I guess it is, of, of territorial, uh, the territorial systems. So they're electing people to send to the territorial legislature in Chillicothe, Ohio. Uh, uh, sorry. Yes, Chillicothe, Ohio. Shout out to Whitney Martinko there, uh, Chillicothe. And, and they actually end up electing a British subject to do this. And there's a, a court case about this. One of the uh, uh, losers in the election launches this court case against Jonathan Schieflin, claiming that he'd signed this declaration. And Jonathan had decided to switch sides by now. Uh, or maybe he hadn't. We don't really know because you can't determine. Um, but uh, he ended up going and sitting in the territorial legislature in Ohio for at least two years. So it just sort of points to all these different problems that are created by... Um, the Jay Treaty and this ambiguity of who is and who is not uh, an American citizen. Great. Um, now, how does that connect in with what you were here working on? Because now you're starting a whole new project. I am. I'm thinking about a new project. Or is it really new or variation on a theme? Or I think it's new to some extent. It's still interested in this question of commerce and sort of um, the connection between sort of American citizenship and making these larger claims about American nationality. So I guess what I would say is that a citizen is sort of a microcosm of the larger um, claims to American sort of sovereignty in the world. So what I'm beginning to look at is American merchants working overseas. So in some ways, it's kind of the reverse of this first project, which was looking at sort of foreign merchants within the United States. Um, so I've began doing some preliminary research, uh, thinking about different places. And I'm particularly interested, uh, at least at this stage, in sort of extra European places. I'm sort of interested in places where American merchants would be working alongside European merchants, but it's kind of a foreign mm -hmm. setting. So, you know, one of the places I've been looking at, uh, uh, Algiers, Tunis, um, a bit, went off to the National Archives the other day and, and uh, despite their best efforts, managed to find some things <laughs> to, to, that were useful. Um, and then also places like Canton, um, Guangzhou as it is today in China, which is another example of this. So these places are sort of governed by these agreements between sort of Europeans and, um, you know, the, the local rulers 
uh, that create these sort of like transnational zones. So that's sort of what I'm interested in. It may expand um, to look at sort of European zones as well and things like that, but that's a start. So there is a tie in here with Washington because I know that's what we like that interests yeah. your folks. So I was I was perusing the the uh, very tasteful and reasonably priced gift shop at Mount Vernon <laughs> yesterday, and saw a reproduction of some of Washington's uh, china. His everyday wear was Canton china. So there you go, Washington Doug. I think that's the past, the Canton china. <laughs> so there we go. Yeah, no, uh, it is. It was, we have uh, you know a few examples uh, through his financial papers at different times. He was, you know, I mean, he's he's a, he's a member of British Empire, right? So mm-hmm. he's uh, globalism is nothing new. Uh, it existed long before George Washington, and very much continues so. to exist after. And yeah, a lot of uh, the furnishings at uh, Mount Vernon uh, were were from you know, around the globe because obviously, I mean, as as you know. Uh, you know, it's a mark of wealth that I can actually go ahead and get this thing from thousands of miles away. And what do you have, George Mason? That's that's a quaint tea set from like Nice <laughs> that you have, but mine's from Canton. So I think we know who's the bigger person, also taller. Um, well, that's great. I mean, I think what's uh, what's what's what I've been particularly fascinated with your project. My uh, master's thesis uh, was on uh, New Orleans right after the Louisiana Purchase mm-hmm. and how the Jefferson administration deals with like, oh wow, that's a lot of French people, yeah, and Spanish people and free people of color. And I I I know we wrote that whole like all people are created equal thing, but how is this going to fit into? The system, uh, because you know the, the Louisiana Purchase Treaty says that you know these people will be given citizenship, and you know, but if you all of a sudden let a bunch of garlic-eating French, and I say that fully lovingly because I'm from New Orleans, yeah, and garlic, I, 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 I too love garlic and French things, uh, but right, they're not, they're not, they're not English-speaking Americans, mm-hmm. and you're instantly starting off with a huge population that could vote against any American officials that are sort of sent down to run for offices. And, and uh, yeah, so it's fascinating for me uh, to read your work sort of in connection with what I had done already uh, to sort of answer those questions, right? Because what is an American citizen? Yeah. And it's, you know, it's something we still debate today to some extent, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yes, yes, very much so. Um, and Jefferson was very suspicious of, you know, Catholics mm-hmm. um, and uh, people of French ancestry. He loved their wine, but he did. <laughs> I've often thought if they'd have had Trader Joe's in Charlottesville, <laughs> he wouldn't have got into so much financial trouble. Um, but it is sort of interesting that that's the approach to Louisiana when that's because actually the arguments that these uh, merchants that I look at make is that the Jay Treaty applies to Louisiana, so they're trying to exploit the same kinds of ambiguities to get into the Missouri River Valley. Um, but this determination that everyone's going to be a citizen, but then the concern about that, and even with uh, you know after granting citizenship, um, well, yeah, because the problem they have is you know that almost immediately after the purchase, the Louisiana Territory, in theory, has the population to immediately ask for statehood, mm-hmm. and you yeah, know it's 60, it's fascinating 000, to watch the processes to which the, the the lengths the federal government will go to to slow roll that that process because they're 
they're not really confident of how that's going to turn out representation-wise, and until they can get more native-born English-speaking Americans sort of into the city, especially, they 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 really sort of nervous. I mean, at one point, there's more, uh, you know, in an era when the entire U.S. Army consists only of, you know, maybe five, 6,000 people, uh, that at one point, the like 80% of the U.S. Army is camped out outside of New Orleans, just in case the Spanish try to reacquire the territory. Because um, there's always this concern of loyal, you know, mm-hmm. will they remain loyal because they're not, because um, they're not us. Mm-hmm. They're not tied into sort of cultural values. So, I mean, the, yeah, so that should, yeah. And the, in some ways, the, that's what makes the sort of comparison between the British Empire and the United States interesting is that the, these two are still bound by so many sort of cultural connections. Um, so both both of these, uh, in dealing with both the Spanish and then French and British in the West, they all present different problems. And it does kind of remind us, you know, we have this vision of Daniel Boone and all this stuff, uh, you know, moving West, the irresistible tide of sort of American Western migration. Um, and, you know... We sort of rejected Turner and this sense that the West is somehow vacant of indigenous people. But it's also a reminder of the legacies of these empires that have been colonizing North America for centuries, that there are these other peoples mm-hmm. out there who don't really fit either um, to the, you know, this idea of um, certainly Jefferson's vision was very homogenous for everybody's got to be on the same page. Yeah. Um, yeah I mean, this is sort of getting outside of our time period. I mean, what if I remember correctly, like part of the Casas Belli that the United States government even cites for the Mexican-American War is that, like, they need to send the U.S. Army in to protect the residents of Santa Fe that the Spanish are not protecting from Comanche raiders, right? So they've got to actually go in to protect Spanish citizens of, of a city like Santa Fe that's at the far end of the Spanish Empire because, you know, Spain's not doing it, so in the name of humanitarian good, the U.S. Army needs to show up and take over California. Yeah, completely, <laughs> and I think that's an argument made in Florida, too, yeah. earlier on, and you know, an argument that's going to continue to be made by yeah. the United States uh, in Latin America. Well, we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, as, as, but as you put out, like, you, you, you don't really see that as much in the historiography. You know, the, there are people there. There are mm-hmm. large groups of people there yeah, that, that are so. organized according to... Uh, you know, more traditional European, Western European style model that, you know, you have to contend with in a totally different way than you would, um, you know, indigenous populations. Yeah. Um, well, what, I mean, we're, or what's there? I mean, when, when are we going to read this book? <laughs> where where I, are you off to next? What's, uh, what's well, still I, to do? Well, I came up with the hashtag full by 60, full professor by 60. <laughs> uh, I just I just got tenure this year. Um, Congratulations. So, thank you. Uh, and, what, and my book, uh, the first book, I'll call it the first book because we'll, we'll assume there'll be another one, um, was just out last year. So this is at early stages. Um, but uh, I'm hoping I should go on sabbatical the year after next. And I'm hoping I can get down into some serious work and maybe there can be an article in the not too distant future. Now, I thought that the point was tenure so you didn't have to do serious work. Um, maybe. <laughs> maybe. It depends who, you know, depends who's listening from <laughs> WSU. Um, so how are you feeling about Washington State football next season? 
Uh, Will Mike Leach action? No. Well, we'll big see. Big fan, not a big fan. We'll see. What? what uh, um, well, you know, there's been some uh, financial problems uh, related to uh, the athletics department. Uh, we'll see what happens. I've always, you know, it's always nice when the Cougs do well. It's about time we beat the Huskies. I haven't done that since my first year in Pullman, so I would like to see that. I don't know if they're playing in Pullman or Seattle this year, but I would like to see that. That's my standpoint. Well, we beat are, the Huskies. Yeah. So, so Mike. I mean, Mike Leach, big history fan. That is so true. It's, uh, maybe I, I don't know if he listens to the podcast, but if he does, uh, Mike, we're, we've put in a request. Beat the Huskies. Yeah. yeah. Probably. I'm sure that wasn't already on the list. The well, requirements. that's one of <laughs> one of the areas of uh, contention that maybe he doesn't take that game seriously enough. Was it, it's the Apple Bowl? Uh, Apple Cup. Apple, Apple, Apple Cup. It's really important to our alumni yeah. and students that we win. Well, yeah, we'll see. Well, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show and, and talking with us about your research. Well, thank you for having me. It's been fun. Thank you for listening to this episode of Conversations at the Washington Library. Be sure to subscribe and follow this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.